passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous Bible teacher and preacher from the early 1900s. And when he was in his mid-30s, his wife tragically died from a bout with cancer. As you can probably guess, this was very difficult for him and for their four children. And on their way to the funeral home, oldest daughter, who was still very young at the, at the time, asked her dad, said, Dad, if Jesus died for us, then why do we still die? If Jesus died for us, why do we still die? How would you respond? Maybe put it another way. Here on Sunday mornings, every Easter, we celebrate the the truth that death has been defeated. That the grave has been overcome. That suffering has been ended. And so why do we still see it so much? Why do we still see so much hurt and pain and death all around us? A song that we just sang says, he brings our chaos back into order. Really? I look at the world all around us and I I don't see a lot of order, but I see a whole lot of chaos. And then I I look inward. It seems like all I can do each and every week is just get ready for the next Sunday. Does he really bring our chaos into order? The same song says, he rules the nations with truth and justice. Really? I look at the rising powers in the East, the extreme conflict in the Middle East, the refugee and migrant uh, conflict in Europe as they try to escape genocide, the immigration crises that we experience here in the United States, the partisan hostility that we see between Republicans and Democrats. And I say, what did Easter really accomplish? Maybe you've wondered those same things. Of course, you've never said it out loud. But you wonder, what did Easter really accomplish? Does it really impact my day-to-day living right now, or is it just something that we celebrate for the end of our lives? I'm not criticizing that song, This Is Amazing Grace. I love that song. I think that the words spoken about, he brings our chaos back into order. And the truth, that he rules the nations with truth and justice. I I believe that. And I, I cling to those truths. But at the same time that we profess that truth, we we shouldn't skip over it. We should wrestle through what this looks like today in our day and age. See, the story of the resurrection is one of the most powerful, most beautiful, and most well-known stories of Christianity. The story of the resurrection is found in every single gospel account that we have. It is the foundation for the story of redemption that we see throughout the Bible. It is referenced explicitly throughout the New Testament. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're not going to look at one of the traditional stories of the resurrection. We're actually going to look at a different story of the resurrection. One that's often passed over and it's found in the most unlikely of places. 
See, it's a different story and it focuses on a different emphasis because it pulls back the curtains and shows us the significance of the resurrection from the view of heaven. We find this, again, in one of the most unlikely of places in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation indeed contains a story of the resurrection and contains a story of the victory of Christ on our behalf. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 this morning. As we explore this text, we're going to see how massive of a change happened in heaven the moment of the resurrection. How significant of a change happened because of Jesus' death on the cross. As we look at chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation, what we're going to see is that this is really a story of two songs. There is a song that has been sung from the beginning of time. And then there's a song that will be sung throughout eternity. Both songs focus on the truth that God is worthy of our praise. That he deserves honor and glory and praise from each and every one of us. But the focus on how they conclude that is radically different. Again, if you have a Bible, we're going to be starting in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Hear these words. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit. And behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You look at these first words of Revelation chapter 4. You see that there is a focus. Everything revolves around one thing in John's vision of heaven. And that is a throne. A throne is the key focus of his vision. In fact, that's the key focus of heaven. Everything in heaven revolves around this throne. Or perhaps more accurately, everything in heaven revolves around the one who sits on this throne. As I read that, you probably wondered, well, what exactly does it mean that the one who sits on the throne has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian? What does it mean that there's an emerald rainbow? How does that even work? What does it mean that there are seven torches of fire representing the seven spirits of God? Who are these 24 elders? If you skipped ahead, you know that we're going to talk about four living creatures. What are the four living creatures? We could spend a lot of time looking at all of these different things. We could spend a lot of time wrestling through the different uh, perspectives on what each of these different creatures is. But don't miss the main focus of this passage. Don't be sidetracked. As we look at this passage, we see that the focus of this passage is worship. 
The focus of the throne is worship. Heaven is a place of worship. That's really the sole industry of heaven. That's why angels exist. That's why the 24 elders exist. That's why the four living creatures exist. That's even why you and I exist for worship. When we mention worship, we're not referring to just dusty old hymns here. Worship from the view of heaven, from the perspective of heaven, is comprehensive. It includes all of life. We worship God when we work with our hands. And we do it for his honor. We worship God when we are using our bodies and exercising and we do it for his honor. We are worshiping God when we sing for his honor. We are worshiping God when, if we are a teacher, teaching our children... For his honor. We worship God as stay-at-home mothers. We can worship God in every aspect of our life, and that is the focus of heaven. It is a place of worship. And notice the reason for this worship. The one on the throne is worshiped because he is majestic. The language here of jasper and carnelian and rainbows and emeralds is referring to the majesty of God. That's not really saying that that's what God looks like. John is failing to find words to describe the one who sits on the throne. And so he refers to things that are majestic and says that's what he is like. The one who is seated on the throne is majestic. He is perfect. He is beautiful and he is holy. I want you to imagine that you were tasked with the responsibility of traveling back in time to the first century and explaining electricity to the people that you came in contact with. If that was your job, you wouldn't make much headway if you spent time explaining positive and negative charges. You wouldn't make a lot of headway referring to different types of currents referring to diodes, electrons, protons. Instead, you would, you would focus on the purpose of electricity, energy, what it does for us, not necessarily how it works for us. And in a way, that's what John is doing here. He ascends to heaven in the Spirit, and he has words that he can't, he can't describe, and so he, he uses images of the majesty of God. Describing this being as worthy of our worship. He is majestic. But he is not just majestic, he is also powerful. The image of a throne makes that very clear to us that this one who is seated on the throne, the uncreated, majestic one, is worthy of worship because he is powerful. But then we see this description of 24 elders who sit on their own thrones with crowns on their head. And we get a little bit later in this passage and we see that they cast down those crowns before the throne of God because he is powerful. Lightning and thunder come from this throne because he is powerful. He is the most powerful being in the universe. And that is so clear from the song that is sung, continuing in verse 6. It says this, And around the throne 
On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. Just a, a side note, as we look at this song, we, we see representatives of all of creation worshiping God. The three different areas of the animal kingdom from ancient times. The lion representing the wild beast, the ox representing the domesticated beast, and the eagle representing the birds of the air, and of course humans representing humanity. All bow down to worship God. Now we could spend weeks looking at each of the stanzas of this song, focusing on what they refer to, why God is worthy of worship. But just briefly notice, he is worthy of worship because he is holy. He is so holy that it's repeated three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is worthy of worship because he existed from eternity and will exist into eternity. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is worthy of worship because of his power. He is the one who is the almighty. He is the one who is worthy of worship. But notice the last part of this song that is sung by the 24 elders. They say this, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The focus of that last stanza is God's incredible work in creation. We worship God because he is the great creator. That's the kicker, if you will, of this song of heaven. God is worthy of worship because he is a creator. It's almost as if the citizens of heaven gathered together and said, we have to find an event sometime in history that is the clearest display of God's power. We have to find an event in history that is the clearest display of God's majesty and his character. And they look throughout history and they say, creation. Creation is the place where God's power is most clearly displayed. Creation is the place where God's character is most clearly displayed as he continues to care for it. Even as it has rebelled against him. We worship you, O God, because you are creator. This is the song that has been sung in heaven from the dawn of time, day and night, without ceasing. God is worshiped 
for his role as creator of all things. And we, as humans, get the chance to join in that song. Anytime that you look at a sunset and you marvel at it and you thank God for it, you are joining in this song. Every time you close your eyes in contentment at the sound of crashing waves at the lake or at the ocean, you are joining in this song that has been sung since the dawn of creation. Whenever you feel a warm breeze of summer on your face, or you smell the flowers of spring, or marvel at the colors of fall, or look with wonder at a silent first snow in winter, you join your voice to this song that is sung and has been sung from the dawn of creation. This is the song of heaven. Even as chaos enters into the world in the garden, even when the world becomes broken and fallen, this worship remains unchanged. After all, why would it change? God created everything good. And not only did he create everything good, but he continues to show his grace to creation by walking with it, remaining faithful to it, even as it rebels against him. And it is this rebellion that is picked up in the beginning of Revelation chapter 5. See, the beginning of Revelation chapter 5, we see that creation is in a crisis. Something has gone terribly wrong in creation. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look within it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. See, John is in heaven, and he sees this crisis of creation from the view of heaven. He sees this crisis begin to unfold. He sees that no one is worthy to open this scroll. You are not worthy. I am not worthy. Martin Luther King Jr. is not worthy. Mother Teresa is not worthy. Confucius is not worthy. Your lovely, wonderful grandpa and grandma, they are not worthy. No one is worthy to open this scroll. You see, something happened in creation. Something happened in this creation in the garden. There's a crisis that emerges. And we see that here, in Revelation chapter 4, this crisis is serious. In fact, it is this crisis of creation that makes Good Friday Necessary is this crisis of creation that makes Easter itself necessary. Did you know the story of Easter starts in the garden? The story of Easter starts in the garden. Max Lucado, a pastor uh, in Texas, describes it this way. He says, The road to Calvary began while the crunch of the apple was still echoing in the garden. The story of Easter starts 
in the garden. It is in the garden where creation enters into a crisis. And we see the effects of this crisis all around us each and every day. We see it when we have loved ones who are diagnosed with cancer or some other sickness that's way too young of an age. We see this crisis of creation when natural disasters lead to the death and displacement of hundreds of thousands of people across our globe. We see it when we look at the structural and systemic issues that rig the deck in favor of the rich with injustice towards the poor. We see this with hate and vitriol and human relationships of every kind. There is a crisis of creation. And each and every one of us is well aware of it. But Revelation 5 reveals another crisis that comes from the garden. One that is the root of all of these other crises. No one is worthy to open the scroll. What's the big deal here? What's the significance of this scroll? Well, it seems to be that this scroll, based off of the context, is referring to a right relationship between God and humanity. It is the restoration of all things. That's why this is the biggest crisis in creation, that no one can open this scroll. No one can restore things to the way they once were without someone who is worthy. All of the crises that we experience each and every day will go unaddressed without someone who is worthy to open the scroll. John knows this. And he weeps at his own unworthiness. He weeps at the unworthiness of all of creation. But even in the midst of his tears, there comes good news. Picking up in verse 5. For someone is worthy. It says this. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set into the, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Who is the one that is worthy? It is the lion of Judah. The imagery here is one of power. And might. He is worthy to take the scroll. Who is the one that is worthy? It's the root of David. The root of David is a, a term referring to the coming king of Israel who will restore everything and will make God's kingdom here on the earth. It is this one who is worthy to take the scroll. Who is the one that is worthy? It is the lamb who is slain. John looks to the throne expecting to see the lion of Judah. He looks to the throne looking and expecting to see the root of David. Instead, he sees a lamb. And not just a lamb. He sees a lamb that is standing slain. The language here probably would be better translated as slaughtered. This is a lamb who was slaughtered. What a paradox. The one who overcomes. The one who is the conqueror is the one who has been killed. Is the one who brings life 
through his death. Again, don't get sidetracked by the horns and the eyes here. In the Bible, a horn is something that refers to power and authority. The fact that there are seven horns doesn't mean that this is a, a, an animal that, that looks extremely odd. It is referring to the great power and authority of this Lamb of God. Same thing with the eyes. Eyes refer to the fact that it's all-seeing, omniscient, knows everything. This lamb is not slaughtered according to a cosmic accident. But this lamb is slaughtered because he lays his life down for those he would save. And so he takes the scroll and the moment he takes the scroll, worship begins again here in heaven. But something different happens in this song that is sung. Pick up in verse 8. We see this new song being sung. It says this, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. I cannot emphasize the importance of what takes place in these verses. For the first time in all of creation, a new song is sung in heaven. This is a song not focusing on creation. And God's role as creator is focusing on a new moment in time. It's focusing on a new time where God shows his power, where God shows his character in a way that is even clearer than in creation. It is at the cross. And it's in the empty tomb. This is the new song of heaven. This is the song of of Good Friday. This is the song of Easter. This is the song of the church throughout the ages. This is the song of the Lamb who was overcome. And this is the song that is on the lips of us today. You see, this song focuses and tells us how he overcame. The Lamb overcame because he was slaughtered. It was through his death on a cross that Jesus is considered to be victorious. It is through his own death that he puts death to death. All, of the, all around us, our culture teaches us that the key to victory is power and strength and force. The key to defeating evil nations, the key to defeating terrorists, is to have more force than them. The key to defeating the evil of others is to put more power in the arms of those who are good. But the cross tells us something different. Redemption is not found in inflicting violence, but redemption is found in the violence that was done to Jesus Christ. The death of the Lamb is the reason why he is overcome. He took violence upon his shoulders, and through that he was victorious. Notice what this passage tells us about what he accomplished through his death. What does it mean that he overcame, that he is victorious? First, it tells us that he ransomed a people for God. All of humanity is held captive, but it is through his blood 
that he redeems them, that he ransoms them. The greatest rescue story ever told. He pays for their freedom with his blood. And he does so willingly. Notice the makeup of this ransom people. They are the most diverse group of people ever assembled. They are from every tribe and nation and language and tongue on the earth. Have you ever thought about the fact that in heaven, most people are not going to look like you? Most people are going to look different. They're going to talk differently. They're going to be from a different era. They're going to have different customs, even from a different continent than you are from. Most people in heaven are not going to be like you. Most of the songs sung in heaven are not going to be in English. Hillsong, Chris Tomlin, Michael W. Smith, maybe their songs will be sung. But it won't be the primary song of heaven. There will be songs sung to God in Swahili. There will be songs sung to God in Portuguese or, or Creole or Mandarin. Thousands of different languages that you have never heard before. Revelation chapter 7 describes this when it says this. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the song of heaven. There's a song sung in every different language. You might say, well, Jordan, why are you spending so much time on this truth. I think it's important for us because we look around and we see we live in a very, very divisive world. The more that I look at the sociological factors that that contribute to the divisions in our culture and in our world, our society, the more depressed that I get that I will ever see a fix in my lifetime. But the cross says something different. The cross says that it is not impossible. That there will be unity between people of every different race, language, tribe, singing together. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the great privilege of teaching brothers and sisters the words to mighty to save. I can't wait to be taught songs in Spanish. To be able to sing along with brothers and sisters. Digno, digno. So cordero de Dios. I can't wait to sing along in Setswanen. Rey Obama, Rey Ikoba, Naun Sahun Yesu. I can't wait to learn all of these different songs and spend eternity worshiping God with brothers and sisters from every different language that has ever existed. Through the blood of the Lamb, God has purchased a people from every nation. Not only has he purchased these people, but he has made them a kingdom of priests. And in a way, that's really the key to worship in our lives. To live as ransom people. To live as a kingdom of priests, as this passage describes. To live as priests and to reign on this earth. That's God's purpose for his redeemed people. His purpose is for them to be his priests and to rule alongside of him over his creation. That was his plan in the garden. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that was God's plan. 
for Adam and Eve and all of humanity to rule alongside of him. And humanity chose to rebel against him. Each of us has chosen to rebel against him. Each of us has tried to dethrone God in our own lives. Each of us has tried to sit on his throne. But it is through the blood of the Lamb that all of this is made right. Indeed, everything is made right through the blood of the Lamb. And that's how Revelation chapter 5 ends with all of creation, not just heaven, but all of creation joining in this new song. Picking up in verse 11, it says this, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the angels fell down and worshiped. This is the scene of worship of heaven. We just zoom out. It's not just the four living creatures. It's not just the 24 elders worshiping God at this moment. But we zoom out and we see innumerable angels, millions upon millions of angels crying out at the top of their lungs, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And it's not just heaven, it is all of creation, rocks, trees, hills, you, me, every single human who has ever lived, who will ever live, crying out, worthy is the Lamb, and bowing down in worship to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, whether they do it willingly or not. As we look at this passage, it's clear that this hasn't happened yet. This isn't the case yet. There still exists rebellion. There still exists those who, who turn their back on God. Still exists suffering. Death still exists. There's still mocking of God. But Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5 assure us that that day is coming. We can be utterly, 100% confident that that day is coming when every piece of creation will sing out the praises of God. We started with Donald Barnhouse being asked this question from his daughter. How would you respond to the fact that we still die even though Jesus died for us? And he assures his daughter that even though we still die, it is just a shadow of death because Jesus rose from the dead. We do indeed suffer. We do indeed die, but it is only temporary Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The question, what happened at Easter? The world changed forever. The world forever changed at Easter. And we're starting to see that worked out bit by bit. We long for the day of its full realization, but the testimony of heaven is that there is a new song being sung, and that new song is a song to the Lamb. And it is at that song that we see that heaven has forever been changed at the cross. It is at the cross that we see that there is victory. 
It is at the cross that we see that there is a ransom for those who are captive. And it is at the cross that we see that there is new life. Friends, that's the good news of Good Friday and Easter. Your old life ends at the cross. Your new life begins at the empty tomb. Your old life ends at the cross. Your new life begins at the empty tomb if you place your faith in Jesus. You see, Christ has ransomed us at the cross. Soren Kierkegaard, a theologian from the 1800s, puts it this way. He says, Christ has not only spoken to us by his life, he has also spoken for us by his death. He has ransomed us as his people. If you are a Christian, you have been spoken for, you have been redeemed, you have been ransomed, you are a child of God. And that is what Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 tell us. The victory of Easter gives us new life. That's the good news of Easter. And we respond in worship. We respond as a ransomed people. If you're not a Christian, the victory of Easter declares, come and be saved. If you are a Christian, but you have been strained from God, it could be for months, it could be for years, the victory of Easter says, come home. If you are a Christian, but you feel distant from God, you feel dry, God's not really even there, the victory of Easter says, come, be satisfied as with the richest of foods. See, here in a few minutes, we're going to respond in song. We're going to have a chance to respond in worship. And I want, as we do that, I want you to just picture this throne room in Revelation chapters 4 and chapters 5. This picture of this new song of Easter being sung by every single being in heaven, innumerable angels worshiping God, the church throughout the world gathered today singing songs of God overcoming through the blood of the Lamb, lifting up our voices with hundreds of thousands of different languages that are being spoken right now and sing, recognizing it is a great privilege to sing this new song. The song of the Lamb who is overcome. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a great privilege to sing your praises. And we rejoice so much that you have overcome. That you died on our behalf, but you didn't just stay dead, but you rose in victory. Even as Paul says, the first fruits of our own resurrection. Guaranteeing that those who are in you will rise from the dead as well. What an incredible thought. So comforting for us. And God, we ask that you would be honored as we join our voices, not only with one another, but with the church around the globe and with those who stand around your throne. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.